Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm your host and producer, Tanya Sarek. In our last episode of 2019, we'll be looking back at some of the biggest stories of the decade. From environmental disasters to sexual assault cases and a substance abuse scandal involving a certain Toronto mayor, the past 10 years have seen Canada's image change drastically, both internally and internationally. While we might be dominating in the worlds of music, sports, and entertainment, Canada is a country that's grappling with an increasing divide between the powerful and the powerless. To help me break down some of these controversial news stories, Pull Quotes podcast editor Ashley Fraser and Ryerson Review of Journalism chief copy editor Daniel McIntosh join me in studio. Hi guys, thanks for being here. Hi. Hi thanks for having me. Thanks, Tanya. Um, so Daniel, as part of this piece you wrote for the RRJ, you compiled a list of some of the decade's most newsworthy stories. And I think it's safe to say that it was probably really difficult for you to choose which stories made the cut and which didn't. But what was the process for deciding which stories garnered a spot on your list? Well, when I was developing this list, I was kind of just trying to look at the issues that defined Canadian interests. But in seeing that, we do have a very homogenized image of Canada. And after that, it made me sort of consider the antithesis of Canadian issues. Who's not getting mentioned in the stories we talk about? Who gets mentioned the least? Who gets uh, acknowledged as sort of being alternative to, to Canadian identity? And finding out the stories that are beyond the, the image that we have collectively of Canada mm-hmm. was really the source of, of what I was trying to get to. Definitely. The first story you discussed was the 2010 Vancouver Olympic controversy. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the 21st Olympic Winter Games in 2010 are awarded to the city of Vancouver. The games are coming back to Canada. Um, can you tell us a bit about this controversy and its significance in Canada? So, for instance, you wrote about the way in which an Indigenous elder passed away after being arrested during yeah. protests. Right. So, I mean, no Olympic comes through without controversy, first and foremost. It's just part of the process of trying to build an entire city and make it look world-friendly in such a short amount of time. And obviously there was this situation with the Georgian loser, Odar Kumarishvili, who unfortunately died during a training run. We found out that there were emails saying that the organizing committee knew the track was dangerous, but unfortunately it does not end there. It didn't even start there in terms of controversy. One of the biggest controversies was endless streams of protests. As we know, it goes without saying that Canada's indigenous communities have always been like the first ones providing the knowledge of environmental protections and environmental justice. So when they were developing the Sea to Sky Highway, it was only one small part of many larger protests, but it really spoke to the symbolic truth of development and gentrification and what lies behind that polished image of the Olympics. It's also a story that involves displacement. As they were developing this highway, people were getting moved out of their homes, forests were getting raised to the ground, and it's often the displacement of minority communities, and that's the story of gentrification. An elder died in prison after refusing to move off the highway when they wanted to start development. They forced an injunction that sent her to prison. She had cancer, and they believe that it exacerbated that cancer. In retaliation, a younger group of activists stole an Olympic flag. It doesn't add up, but you understand what's at stake here. Canada, we definitely think of ourselves as apart from that colonial history because we're not as bad, and I'm using scare quotes there, but we are still a settler nation and there's really no getting around that. 
that's really interesting. And then there was tons of stories that came out during that time. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you kind of highlighted all of those together. Right. Yeah. The torch also was, had to be diverted because they put a protest on the, on the route. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, we saw more protesters arrested following another Keystone XL pipeline spill. In other news, a major cleanup is underway after a giant oil spill. Enbridge! That pipeline is about all that stuff. We don't need it. We try to take out that wherever the contamination is, but once it's in the river, it's, it's almost lost. In September of that year, 117 protesters were arrested on Parliament Hill. Besides the obvious environmental risks of the pipeline, how did this story contribute in defining how we go about reporting on pipelines? I just find it funny that this comes up at a time when we've just had another pipeline spill, the same Keystone XL that we've been dealing with for the entire decade. Yeah. And again, Indigenous groups and environmental justice organizers are on the front line of this one as well. When we're reporting on it, obviously journalists follow the story and the protests were kind of cunning in that way taking it right to the parliament and uh, to our neighbors to the south, the White House. I think it speaks to the increasing homogenization of state interests and business interests. So I think when you get images of the police and writing about how police clashed with protesters, clashing with environmental activists in front of the house of law, you get the understanding that the environment is a political ground and it takes collective action to bring attention to the issues. And as we've seen throughout the decade, the climate protest is sort of a hot button issue. It's so prevalent now. Exactly. And I think definitely this year during the election, that was Mm -hmm. such a key issue. Absolutely. And I think obviously coverage of these topics has made us as Canadians so much more aware about what is going on here with the environmental story and and what is actually happening with the climate emergency. And also who's feeling the real pressure of the environment. Because we can be all rah-rah on Twitter and vocalize and make signs, but the fact of the matter is, if you have money and if you're wealthy, you can probably insulate yourself from environmental pressures, what other people simply don't have that option. And and definitely in stories like anything about the pipelines, you often see those people that are going to be directly affected first Mm -hmm. by these problems. And another defining trait of the decade, I think, was the hashtag MeToo movement. And it was highly publicized cases of sexual assault, which dominated headlines all over the world. But in Canada specifically, former CBC Q host Gian Gomeshi's case hit very close to home when he was charged with four counts of sexual assault and one count of overcoming resistance by choking. Gian Gomeshi's fall from grace was shocking, seemed sudden. Mr. Gomeshi will be pleading not guilty. But the unraveling of one of CBC's best-known personalities was in the making for months. Allegations and denials quietly bubbling until the story finally exploded. And Daniel, what was it about this case in particular that caused so much controversy among the media coverage of this story? Well, I think, especially with the Gomeshi case, it was pre-Me Too, first of all, so it still had that sort of shock factor to see it disseminate through the media. And initially, when the piece broke, I remember it was simply he got fired in silence and then he got ousted from a hosting position. Mm -hmm. I think people were sort of, well, within media at least, were sort of 
piquing interest and saying, well, why could, did this happen? It had to be very serious. Mm -hmm. And as we know, it was very serious. I believe it was 20 plus women who came forward with allegations against Gameshi. Again, not all of that stuck. And we can speak to that about how the court system is also colonial. It's a boys club and all of that. The point of the matter is that it served as a sort of precursor for what would eventually become the Me Too movement. I feel like it almost served as a template because we see this now happening almost every day. In 2017, when Ronan Farrow started breaking about Weinstein, we saw a similar outcry with Kevin Spacey and, and name after name after name. And now that's very much exemplified on The Morning Show and we're seeing it on in television series. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's sort of had a, a media fallout and permeated the culture in a sort of way. But what I find funny is that it's only been four or five years and someone already said, okay, it's been long enough, you can have a platform. Luckily enough, we have social checks and balances that led to him getting fired for what is now not a smart decision. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Of course, in 2017, we had Globe and Mail reporter Robin Doolittle's 20-month investigation called Unfounded, which was an analysis of police data that revealed one in five sexual assault reports to be dismissed as baseless. Here we have uh, what we found is now more than 5,500 people every year going to police reporting sexual assault, and their cases are just being dismissed um, as unfounded. They're not being counted. And this research was critical as the Me Too movement continued to grow. Why was Doolittle's reporting so critical in how we cover sexual assault? I think it was critical in how we cover sexual assault because it's journalism at the most basic level. It's speaking truth to power. When it was revealed that police were sort of flattening the issue of sexual assault and just saying, oh, it's unfounded, we can't really do anything about it. Well, what are you doing? What are people paying taxes for? This is what you should be doing. This is serious bodily crime. It mm -hmm. shouldn't be just brushed under the rug like that. Doolittle's reporting did the basic tenet of journalism. Mm -hmm. I would say. And it did have a real effect as well, which is heartening to see as a journalism student. More than 6,000 cases have been reopened as of December 2017. That's very impressive mm -hmm. to think you could do that just from your interviews and reading through case files. You have a real effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And Doolittle also earned some notoriety for her reportage on Rob Ford's crack scandal in 2013. Mm -hmm. There has been a serious accusation from the Toronto Star that I use crack cocaine. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Can you get off my driveway, please? Yes, I have smoked crack cocaine. But no, do I? Am I an addict? No. Have I tried it? Um, probably in one of my drunken stupors, probably approximately about a year ago. How did the coverage of the story of Rob Ford's substance abuse have an impact on Canada's reputation? Well, it's hard to say because Canada always had that image of just being, they're the nice ones, they're the good guys, they have no issues and no problems. I remember specifically Jon Stewart and a lot of late night hosts really took the bait with that one just because it was so ridiculous. Obviously the tone was much different internally. If you remember, there was a specific issue when a bunch of reporters addressed him at the Globe and Mail and said, why won't you answer our questions? You'll go on American media and answer their questions. And he basically shot back and said, are you really jealous or something to that effect? It's, like, it's not about jealousy. It's about taking it seriously. This is a serious issue and you're the mayor of our city. Why can't you respond to our questions and, and answer your constituents? It clashed with the image many foreigners have of Canada, as, CBC, as CTV News reported, that just being 
again, the nice guys. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't dream of doing something like having a crack smoking there, but were people too. Did it really have much of an effect on his career or the Ford family name? Apparently not, because <laughs> Doug Ford is still the premier of Ontario. Yeah. We have reporters now like Daniel Dale, who started out his amazing fact-checking because of the Fords. Right. And now, you know, he's covering Trump, the non-truth teller of them all. That's interesting how that permeated mm-hmm. uh, into the US, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Besides Rob Ford, Canada has struggled over the past 10 years with its image as an inclusive and diverse country. The last story on your list, Daniel, was the unfulfillment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings. Canada has been awakened. The words of a residential school survivor today as the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was submitted. His words came with a plea for Canadians to take that next step to take the call to action. When the final report was released in 2015, 94 calls to action were recommended for correcting the legacy of residential schooling and conciliation between Indigenous and settler communities in Canada. In an address from Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, I give you my word that we will renew and respect that relationship. In terms of the coverage of this commission, what work went into understanding the complexity of this story? I think back to what you said about Justin Trudeau's little speech there. He Mm -hmm. also mentioned that in schools, he had a teacher who glossed over residential schools and said, this part of it isn't important. Mm -hmm. This doesn't matter. And treated it very glibly. And media plays a big role in sort of creating the narrative of the culture of your city, of your country, of your nation. So when the media is also complicit in deepening that divide or not understanding of indigenous ideas and indigenous values and what they want after having been subjugated for so long, it creates a deeper divide. As we know, the indigenous schools were run not only by the government of Canada, but by the Catholic Church as well. One thing that stuck out to me in the 94 calls to action that hasn't been resolved is a simple symbolic gesture from the Pope apologizing for the Catholic Church's role in the residential schools in Canada. And in March 2018, he refused to meet that very basic goal. There's no implementation in that. All you have to do is come to Canada and say, I'm sorry, not to be disrespectful. And according to a letter by the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Pope felt that he couldn't personally respond but didn't rule out the potential of a future visit. That's sort of, maybe I can do it maybe we can do something for you. That sort of defined Canada's relationship to its indigenous citizens. Even though we have 94 ways to get there, mm-hmm. very little of that has been put into place. It puts a sour taste in your mouth for it, and it being in 2019 and the fact that we're going to start a new decade and be in the same place. So in discussing all of these stories, you mentioned it in the beginning about some of the themes that you encountered, but when you looked at all these stories, these 10 stories of the decade, what really stuck out to you in terms of what they represent for Canadian media coverage? Well, it would have been really easy to just be positive and focus on the benevolent sort of catch-all ideas such as Syrian refugees being welcomed in, even though it was really only a fraction of the people who have been displaced. But what I saw when I was looking through stories was an increasing divide between the powerful and the powerless, wealth entrenchment with the Panama Papers especially, and things like Mm -hmm. that. So I was really looking behind that veneer of of progressiveness that Canada sort of maintains, and it reveals the truth of that wealth inequality, of environmental disaster, of the increasing divide between minority communities and white communities in Canada, especially the continuing subjugation of, of indigenous people. And despite all our success, despite 
despite Drake, despite winning as many sports tournaments as we have, there's still behind the curtain this darkness that needs to be addressed. And, and that's and our responsibility. That's our responsibility as members of the media, future members of the media, hopeful members of the media, that we're not going to get to completely re-earn trust and even out the scale, so to speak, but we have to do what little we can to make change. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel, and for helping us break down the decade's biggest news stories. Thank yeah. you for having me. And you can read the rest of Daniel's top 10 stories of the past decade on our website at rrj.ca. That's it for our show, but let us know your thoughts on the decade's biggest stories on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by Tanya Surik and myself, Ashley Fraser. Special thanks to technical help from Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna, and thanks to Daniel McIntosh for being on our show today. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you liked our show today, be sure to subscribe. And if there's something you would like to hear on our show next year, do let us know. We will be back in January with more episodes. See you in the next decade.